right then. Let's turn in our Bibles to Matthew chapter 19. While you're turning there, let me, let me just say, lest anybody send me an encouraging note about Manchester United or any uh, memorabilia, I've repented and I'm an Everton supporter. So if you'd like to send me something by way of Everton, great, Manchester United will get returned to sender. All right? Matthew chapter 19, and we are going to read verses 1 to 12. Matthew chapter 19, verses 1 to 12. It says, Now when Jesus had finished these sayings, he went away from Galilee and entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. And large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. And Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. They said to him, Why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? He said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. The disciples said to him, if such is the case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry. But he said to them, not everyone can receive this saying, but only those to whom it is given. For there are eunuchs who have been so from birth, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men, and there are eunuchs who have, been made, who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this, receive it. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, we pray this morning you would give us insight into your word, that you would help us to understand it clearly and to obey it faithfully. Pray that you would help us to see the grace of Jesus in the gospel as we consider marriage together. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as God would have it, uh, I, in light of preparing for a message on Matthew chapter 19, have also been preparing to officiate a wedding on Saturday afternoon. A young man by the name of Dave who had come to faith in Christ as a college student and one of the college ministries I used to oversee, and who subsequently has sort of grown up, got a real job, found himself a proper woman, and now is taking the plunge into marriage. It's a real joy uh, to watch someone sort of mature in their Christian faith to that point. And all of us love weddings. We love the idea of marriage. For many of us, weddings are an opportunity to get out maybe with our spouse, celebrate with friends and family. For people like me, and I admit that I'm a little strange, uh, weddings give me an opportunity to review vows. I told you I was strange. Give me an opportunity to review vows. And I found myself this past week just sort of marveling at the, the standard set of vows uh, that I present before couples who come to me asking that I would officiate their wedding. And they read as follows. I call upon the persons here present to witness that I blank, that's of course where the man inserts his name, You've, you've seen this before. Do take you blank to be my lawful wedded wife, to have and to hold from this day forward for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, to love and to cherish, and I've lost my place, 
to love and to cherish according to God's holy ordinance, and therefore, thereto, I pledge my faithfulness as long as we both shall live. According to God's holy ordinance. That's the line that has stood out to me this past week because it really gets to the essence of what is marriage. There are, of course, competing messages about what marriage is in our culture. Either marriage is according to God's holy ordinance, established from the beginning of time by a loving creator and grounded in the gospel of Jesus Christ, or it is, as one writer referred to it, a man-made ideology, a social construct. Of course, you realize that what you determine about marriage has implications for how marriage is esteemed. If, in fact, marriage is a man-made ideology, well, then it can be entered into lightly and exited just as lightly. Marriage is something that can be put on and taken off at will. However, if marriage is according to God's holy ordinance, then He sets the parameters. I think we're going to find as we turn to Matthew chapter 19 that Jesus believes that marriage is according to God's holy ordinance. Now, each and every one of us has got to come to grips with the teaching of Jesus about marriage. Perhaps you're here and you have never been married, you're too young to get married. Understand that what you believe about marriage in your younger years is going to dictate the way that you seek a spouse later on in life. Others of us have to come to grips with what Jesus teaches about singleness and the value, of course, of singleness in the kingdom of God. There is much here in Matthew 19 about marriage, specifically God's plan for marriage. But before we even dive in, I want to just say this at the outset. Jesus does not intend here in Matthew 19 to sort of provide you or me with the Bible dictionary entry on divorce and remarriage. Some of us approach the Scriptures as if it's a textbook. The Bible is a textbook just sort of written to address every possible question that you and I might ask. But understand, in this instance, Jesus is responding to a very specific question asked from a very specific motive with a very specific background, and so of course he gives a very specific answer. We're not going to answer every possible question this morning. We're going to have to at some point address Paul's teaching in 1 Corinthians 7, but here this morning we are tasked with sticking to the line of Matthew 19. And in this text, if you look at at it carefully, you'll notice that generally speaking, there is a message to the Pharisees beginning in verse 3, and a message to the disciples beginning in verse 10. The message that Jesus has for the Pharisees has everything to do with the permanence of marriage. The permanence of marriage. And then his message to the disciples has everything to do with the priority of the kingdom. The permanence of marriage, the priority of the kingdom. I try my hardest to avoid alliteration in my outlines, but this time I just couldn't avoid it. So I've earned my Baptist stripes for the month. The permanence of marriage and the priority of the kingdom. So I want to look first at the permanence of marriage beginning in verse 1. Here is the context. Now when Jesus had finished these sayings, that is the sermon on the church in chapter 18, he went away from Galilee and entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan, and large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. This is sort of the beginning of the outworking of all that Jesus has been saying to his disciples throughout this latter part of the gospel according to Matthew. You will remember in chapter 16 after the great confession that Jesus is the Christ from Peter, that Jesus from that time, verse 21 of chapter 16, 
began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem. It was not an option, it was a necessity. And suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes, and be killed and on the third day be raised. Then in chapter 17 of verse 22, as they were gathering in Galilee, Jesus said to them, the Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and he will be raised on the third day. So here Jesus is leaving Galilee, verse 1, and entering the region of Judea. He is encroaching upon Jerusalem. The journey to the cross is now in full effect. And you would expect, rightly, that if Jesus prophecies his his predictions of what would await him in Jerusalem were true, that here as he approached Jerusalem, the temperature would, would be turned up, that tensions would rise, that Jesus would be tested and tried. And that is exactly what happens. As Jesus enters the area and he begins to heal the large crowds gathering about them, Mark in chapter 10 in a parallel passage says that Jesus taught the crowds. Here he is healing and teaching the people. And you can almost imagine this group of Pharisees in the corner sort of huddled up plotting with one another. Oh, Jesus, there he is again. Large crowds are following after him. He's healing them. He's teaching them. If we don't do something about this soon, there's going to be no stopping him. And so they come up with an age-old tactic. They plot to try and trap him in his words. Now this is a methodology that is often used by those who would try to discredit what the Bible clearly teaches. And it's no different here. Let's bring up a hot topic of the day. Let's present Jesus with two alternative opinions. Let's allow him to choose one, and in so doing, alienate himself from half of the people. Let's trap Jesus in his words. And so they ask him this question. Look at verse 3. The Pharisees came up to him and tested him. That's the key. This is not from a pure motive. This is impure. This is trying to trap him, trick him, um, sort of get him uh, in his words. They ask, is it lawful, verse 3, to divorce one's wife for any cause? Is it lawful to divorce a wife for any cause? Or, as the NIV translates, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any cause? and every reason. That's really the the thrust of the question. Or, is it lawful to divorce a man's wife due to incompatibility, irremedial differences? That's the NLT, is the new lawyer's translation. (laughs) They're asking, essentially, is it permissible to practice no-fault divorce? Now, in order to sort of get our minds around what's at stake here, we have to try and put ourselves in the historical context of this day. And I don't want to bore you with unnecessary details. This is essential to understand what this question is really getting at. In this day, there were two competing views generally about the issue of divorce. They represented two competing schools of thought within Judaism. On the one hand, there was the school of Shammai, the conservatives, who taught on the basis of Deuteronomy chapter 24, we're going to visit that in a little bit, on the basis of Deuteronomy chapter 24, they argued that the only permissible reason for divorce, in fact, uh, it was a requirement, you must divorce in this event, was if a man's spouse had been sexually unfaithful. On the other hand, there was the school of Hillel, 
who were sort of a little bit more liberal, a little more loosey-goosey in their practice of divorce. And they stated that it wasn't only permissible, it was required that a man divorce his wife based on anything that he found indecent. And the Mishnah, one of the Jewish documents that records sort of the teaching of the rabbis, Hillel suggested that a man should divorce his wife if she presented him with a burned piece of food. It was divorceable. So we got two schools of thought. Now look at this question. Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? That question, of course, requires a yes or a no answer, doesn't it? There there are two answers. Yes, it is lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause. No, it is not lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause. If Jesus says yes, he aligns himself with Hillel, the liberals, and alienates Shammai. If he says no, he aligns himself with Shammai, the conservatives, and alienates Hillel. It is a trick question designed to create animosity towards Jesus. I I can remember um, several years ago, there's a man by the name of Rob Bell who wrote just a tremendously unhelpful book that denied much of what the Bible teaches on the judgment of God uh, and really the existence of hell. And he appeared on one of the 24-hour news stations in an interview. And the, the, the interviewer asked him right out of the gate, he said, which one of these is true? Is it A, God is loving but not powerful enough to save people from suffering? Or B, is it that God is powerful enough, just not loving enough to save people from suffering? And the answer, of course, is none of the above. But it's a trick question designed to trap him in his words. He didn't need much help trapping himself in his words, but the interviewer presented the opportunity anyways. That's the kind of question that Jesus is being asked here. Which is it, Jesus? It's a yes or no question. Who's right? And Jesus, of course, refuses to be backed into a corner, and rather than saying yes or no, says neither. They're both wrong. They're both wrong. And he does so, I want you to notice, as painfully obvious as it is, I want you to see this, this is vitally important for everything that we do as Christians, all the conversations we have as we try and figure out God's will for our lives. Look at verse 4. He answered, have you not read? Stop. According to Jesus, any conversation that we're going to have about divorce, about marriage, about what marriage means and when it can be terminated, etc., is going to have to be done on the basis of the Scriptures. We're not having this conversation based on our own desires. We're not having this conversation based on our own emotions. We're having this conversation on the strength of the Scriptures. Have you not read? Now notice why we're going to appeal to the Scriptures as we talk about things like this. Have you not read, is this question, that He who created them from the beginning made them male and female? That's God, of course. But He didn't only create what else did he do? And said. Now what's fascinating here in Jesus' view of Scripture is that most scholars, at least conservative scholars, will tell you that Moses is the author of Genesis. He's appealing here to Genesis. And he does not say, Jesus, have you not read what Moses said? He says, have you not read what God says? The reason that we're going to have these conversations on the basis of Scripture is because the Scriptures are God's Word. 
written by human authors, of course, but they are God's words. We are appealing to God's design and intention for marriage. Plainly set forth, according to Jesus, in Genesis chapter 1, verse 27, and Genesis chapter 2, verse 24. Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? That's chapter 1, verse 27 of Genesis. And said, here's chapter 2, verse 24, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. For Jesus, what the Scriptures say, God says, and what God says is final. Now, in the context of Genesis, this verse in chapter 2, verse 24, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother, etc., the therefore refers back to God's creation of male and female equally alike created in the image of God, but also the God-designed beautiful gift of gender difference. He made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. There's much that could be said here to our current climate of, uh, uh, of permissibility as it comes to marriage relationships, heterosexuality, homosexuality. There's much to say here about the God-givenness of gender. But notice that those aren't the points that Jesus intends to make. Jesus is speaking about the permanence of marriage. So understand, if we're going to uphold Gender difference and uniqueness is a beautiful gift from the Lord. If we're going to uphold the ideal of marriage, God-given purpose of marriage being between one man and one woman monogamously, then we must also uphold the teaching of Genesis that marriage is permanent. Now here's what Jesus does. He gives them the what, that is what does the Bible say. He gives them the so what, that is, what does the Bible mean by what it says? And he gives them the now what. In other words, what are we going to do in light of what the Bible means by what it says? What does the Bible say? Have you not read? Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. One flesh. Joined together, glued. Sometimes you talk about couples, they're, they're attached at the hip. That's the ideal in marriage. Glued together, bonded if you want it put more graphically, more intimately, God says that they become one flesh, man and woman, the intimacy of sexual relationship, only within the confines of heterosexual, monogamous, permanent marriage, the two become one. If you're married, you can look at your spouse and say, I belong to you, and you do. Men, you belong to your wives just as much as your wives belong to you. Isn't that a radical idea? One flesh. That's the what. That's what God says. That was his intention from before the fall, before sin ever entered the world. But so what? Okay, the two become one flesh. So, verse 6, they are no longer two, but one flesh. But where Jesus is ultimately driving is the now what. In light of what God says, how am I to think about marriage what is the application of God's design for marriage? What, therefore, God has joined together, let not man separate. 
You know, I think about all the weddings I've officiated. I love officiating weddings. And from time to time, you'll meet up with a couple and they'll say, you know, back when you married us, I have never married anyone. I got married to my wife, but I have never married anyone. Who does the marrying? Per the Lord. God does the marrying. What therefore God has joined together. Well, I don't like my spouse. Well, God put you with him. So, sorry. What God has joined together. You married me. No, God married you. Understand why Jesus has such a tight line on divorce as it relates to God's intention for marriage. Two people cannot be separated without a mere human being disrupting the work of Almighty God. Do you see that contrast? God and man. What God has joined together, let not man separate. There is no divorce that does not put asunder what God has joined together. Why is this so important? It is not so important just because we want to win culture wars. It's not so important because, you know, sort of Baptist preacher woke up this morning and thought marriage is the thing. It's important because marriage is established by God. It is from, from the beginning, from creation, and it is grounded, understand, in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Marriage might just be the most tangible illustration of what Jesus does for his people in the gospel that we have. That's why Paul in Ephesians 5 picks up on the Genesis 2 passage and says, this mystery is profound, but back in Genesis, we were referring to Christ and the church. It is not without reason that Jesus, within the gospel according to Matthew, refers to himself as the bridegroom. The gospel is a great love story. It's a wedding of God and his love for his people from before time began covenanted with His Son to send His Son to live a perfect life and to die a sacrificial death out of volitional, sacrificial love for His bride. And covenanting with His Spirit to go and awaken those people and draw them to Himself. This is a beautiful love story. That is why Christian people are called the bride of Christ. Jesus has wedded himself to us. And in so doing, what does he say? I will never. I will never leave you or forsake you. Never. And so why is this so important? Because loved ones, what we believe about marriage reveals what we believe about the gospel. Jesus has been asked a gotcha question. He's answered it beautifully, masterfully, oh, to be able to respond to questions like Jesus. And he's presented immediately with another question, and it's a wobout. What'd you say? A wobout. So when Henry and I are playing, and we start asking, what about this, what about that? 
we start rolling so fast that it stops being what about and it's what about. Marriage is one of those issues that presents a million and one what abouts. What about this? What about that? What about this? And here we got what about. What about Moses' command, verse 7, that one give uh, his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away. Now remember, this whole background is Deuteronomy 24. Deuteronomy 24, where Moses, according to the Pharisees, have commanded, has commanded that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and dismiss her. Commanded. I want to read to you from Deuteronomy chapter 24 just so you get the background here. This is what Moses says. He says, When a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, And he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house. And she departs out of his house. He goes on to describe she subsequently gets remarried and divorced. They can't marry again. Did you hear a command there? I sure didn't. There's no command. When a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he's found some indecency in her. And he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand, etc. It's case law. There's no command there. See, again, this is the tactic of those who want to avoid what the Bible plainly teaches. What about? I'm going to pit Paul against Jesus. They're not saying the same thing. How could you believe this stuff? Heck, Moses can't even agree with himself. The purpose of God and marriage in Genesis 2, but now he's commanding the people. You notice what Jesus said? Moses does no such thing. There's no command, there's an allowance. They ask, why then did Moses command one to give her a certificate of divorce? Jesus says, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed. There's a big difference there, isn't there? When I say to, to my son, you may go outside, I'm saying, hey, go have fun, man. If I say get outside, I'm annoyed and need some space. Two very different things. Allowance or command? There's no command. See, Jesus has done the following. He has stayed on the line. God's intention for marriage is no divorce. That is within the framework, the the sort of warp and woof, the grain of Genesis 1 and 2. That's his intention. But here in Deuteronomy 24, there's an allowance for divorce. What's happened? Well, understand that before, or between rather, Genesis 1 and 2 and Deuteronomy 24, we have a Genesis 3. We have sin. And Jesus says here, in light of a post-Genesis 3 world, God's intention for marriage still stands. No divorce. However, there is an allowance because of your hardness of heart because of sin. Now understand that there are many of us here who have have been divorced, experienced divorce, the heartache, the sort of upheaval that that creates. I'm sympathetic to that. Some of you are divorced because of no fault of your own. Abandoned by an unbelieving spouse, cheated on by a spouse. But understand there is no divorce that doesn't involve Sin. There is no such thing as a sinless divorce. Do you see that? Not 
the act of divorce itself, but the causes that get us there. There's no such thing as a, uh, a marriage that terminates that doesn't do so because of sin. Because of your hardness of hearts, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. It is not God's intention. And so I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. There's the exception. Matthew 19. Again, we've got to put 1 Corinthians 7 on the table for now. According to Jesus, in this text, in this context, the exception is adultery. Spouse cheats on you. Jesus says you you don't have to divorce, but you may. What is the pastoral application of this for me? I will tell you, as I've told many of you from, from time to time, I will never tell you that you should get divorced. Never. But there are instances where I will tell you that you may. This is one of them. Put my cards on the table. The other would be abandonment by an unbelieving spouse, physical abuse. We have to use our heads. But here Jesus is clear. God's intention is no divorce. What if I've been divorced and remarried? There's grace for that. We look to Jesus for the forgiveness of our sins. But here is the message of Jesus about marriage. It's permanent. But it's really easy to miss that Jesus has a message about singleness, friends. And it's really, really important. Because he tells his disciples of the priority of singleness. Look at verse 10. The disciples said to him, If such is the case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry. Now understand, if you're feeling sort of the weight of this kind of framework for marriage, good night, this is strict. You're in really good company because look at what the disciples say. Well, if that's the case, man, better not even get married in the first place. They've picked up on what Jesus is putting down. If this is the case, it's better not to even marry at all. But Jesus said to them, not everyone can receive the saying, but only those to whom it is given. Yeah, it's hard, Jesus says. This is a hard saying. We need the grace of Christ himself to receive it. But then in verse 12, there are eunuchs who have been so from birth. There are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men. There are eunuchs who have, been made, themse- who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. The one who is able to receive this, receive it. That's probably the largest concentration of the word eunuch I've ever read. And um, some of you will not know what a eunuch is. And I want to tell you, if you want some insight on eunuchs, here's where you email your questions. J-L-U-T-Z at F-B-C-N-C dot org. He's really eager. He's waiting. Have at it, man. It's going to be beautiful. Eunuchs. There are eunuchs who have been so from birth. They're born incapable of procreating, therefore remain single. There are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men through castration. We just keep moving. And there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. In other words, there are those who have chosen singleness for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. There are some of you here who are, who are single, and praise God that you're single. Some of you have never been married. You may never get married. 
Some of you have been divorced and abandoned and have yet to find a, a new spouse. And I want to apologize for the way that we in the church have made you feel lesser. Because we have exalted marriage to an unhealthy place as if you're not complete until you find a spouse. We bought the garbage from Jerry Maguire, the you complete me garbage. When in actual fact, Jesus completes you. One of my first posts as a pastor was ministering to people who were 35 and older and single, and I was 26. (laughs) Trial by fire, man. Tell you what. People who had never been married struggled with feeling lesser. My second post was 22 to 35, mostly singles. Yet again, I mean, I'm, I'm just not a proper Christian. I can't find a spouse. And then what's worse is you talk to people and they think you're weird. Right? They're weird. There, there's got to be something wrong with them. They're, they're still single. Or behind closed doors when nobody's listening, there are the, the crude and unkind jabs about an individual's sexuality because they're not yet married. They're weird. Couldn't be further from the truth. Jesus never married. So where are you taking your cues from? I think Lottie Moon, referred to as the patron saint of Baptist mission, Lottie Moon never married. At one point she was asked to, to marry a man, but she did, he didn't quite meet her standards. And so when asked if she had ever been in love, her answer was yes, but God had first claim. God had first claim on my life. And since the two conflicted, there could be no question about the result. I think of John Stott, who ran the race and kept the faith, preached till his dying breath. We're still using his material here. Never married. Was he weird? No. I think of Dick Lucas, 90 years old, St. Helens Bishop's Gate, founder of the Proclamation Trust, the godfather of modern expositional preaching. He's a genius. Never married. To be half the man that Dick Lucas is. Is he weird? Mm -mm. He's just prioritized the kingdom. So if you're here this morning, you're single, that's okay. I want you to know that if you have Jesus, you have all that you'll ever need. What do we need to hear about marriage from our Lord here in this text? We need to hear that if if Jesus is Lord, if if he's the king who rules over the kingdom of heaven, if he's the one who lives and dies for his people, if we want to show the world that, then we're going to get married And understand the exceptions prove the rule, but generally speaking, we're going to get married and we're going to stay married. And if we're single, we're going to find our joy and our satisfaction, our fulfillment, not in some fairy tale message about marriage that's piped to you from Disney, some nonsense like that. You're going to take Jesus at his word. The one who believes in me will never hunger, never thirst. 
Our friend Jesus was the most fulfilled, satisfied, joyful human being ever to live. And never, never married in the earthly sense. He's content to be wedded to his bride. My good friend Titus Martin is the pastor of College Hill Reformed Press. I asked him if I could plagiarize his plagiarism quote this morning. He said yes, so I guess it's not really plagiarism. But in a wedding, as he married um, one of our own, actually, Bryce Kaufman, said Christian love is plagiarized love. How good is that? Christian love is plagiarized love. So look at your spouse. Think of the love that Jesus has for you. Think of that I will never leave you, never forsake you kind of love. And you plagiarize that stuff like it's going out of style. And if you're single, you look at that Jesus, I will never leave you, never forsake you. I will satisfy you. I will be your all in all kind of love. And just spread the gospel joyfully. Plagiarize, plagiarize, plagiarize. Father, thank you so much that you picture your relationship with your people through your son as a marriage. Think about so many different images that you could use, and yet one of them is Jesus as the bridegroom and we, your people, as the bride. We think of all of our faults and failures. We look at ourselves in the mirror, warts and all. And we marvel that you could love us and indeed wed yourself to us. We thank you, God, that you are faithful to your vows. That you will never leave us or forsake us. So, Lord, we pray that as we seek to follow you by your grace, that we would have the same view towards our spouses. Lord, we pray for marriages that need work here this morning. We pray that your healing and your forgiveness would be part and parcel of our experience. Pray for those of us who have been pained by Adultery and divorce, abandonment, abuse. Even those of us who are guilty of those things. We pray that we would find forgiveness and satisfaction in Christ. We pray for those of us who are single. Lord, thank you for our single people. Thank you for the way that they faithfully serve you. Thank you for the way that they sacrifice for the kingdom. We pray that that they would be able to sing in a a very special, unique, grace-empowered way this morning. Hallelujah, all I have is Christ. Lord, make us gospel people. 
who live lives of plagiarized love. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.